Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. We would like to thank you for once again joining us into our weekly journey into the history of sports. Really can be anything, anything from 1890s baseball to Super Bowl 25 to the early days of the NBA. You name it, we cover it here on Hello Old Sports. And as you will know, if you listen to the past couple of episodes, Andrew and I are devoting some time to our alma maters, or at least two of our alma maters. We did an episode, a couple episodes recently about LaSalle basketball. We had Mr. Grzbowski on to talk about his excellent Tom Gola book. And basketball is not really our thing at my alma mater at Boston University. So we've decided to talk about a sport that we haven't talked a lot about so far here on Hello Old Sports, and that is the sport of ice hockey. So we're going to talk a little bit about Boston University hockey for the next uh, hour or so. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Like you mentioned, we uh, did an episode or two on the history of my alma mater, the LaSalle University Explorers. Well, we also talked about when LaSalle College became LaSalle University, probably for longer than we should have. You know, that was good. So now we're returning the favor. And as we have discussed previously, I will wait for the next go around before we get into my other alma mater, the John Jay High School football team. And I will mostly spend the time railing against the absurd call that went against us in 10th grade against Arlington in 2001. But we'll we'll hold off on that for at least another couple of weeks. Although you've already promised me that we can do several episodes on this. I've said no such thing. But before we start, just the... Because the play was over already. Anyway, go ahead. Was this penalty on you? No, I was on the sideline. It was on our kickoff team. Ah. So before we begin, just the normal entreaties to please like us on Facebook, Hello Old Sports Podcast. Email us if you have any questions or show ideas or anything like that. Hello Old Sports at gmail.com. Follow us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Give us a nice five star rating. Tell us what you like. All of that good stuff, please just find whatever way you can to engage with the show. And if you have any energy left over after you do that, check out the rest of the great shows on the Hello. I'm sorry, the rest of the great shows on the Sports History Network podcast network at sportshistorynetwork.com. Andrew and I have guested on a number of shows recently, uh, specifically Darren Hayes' show, Pigskin Dispatch. We've done some episodes about uh, the greatest football players to wear one number or another. So as you will know, if you've listened to the show for any period of time, Andrew and I are both 
born and bred New Yorkers. And so that makes us sort of, I guess, somewhat maybe a little bit, even though I'm an alumni, that makes us a little bit unqualified to talk about hockey in Boston and in New England. And so in order to supplement the episode today, we thought we would bring in, well, we thought we'd bring in another New Yorker because why not? So <laughs> my good friend and college, I wouldn't say classmate because uh, I was a year ahead of her, but my good friend and fellow New Yorker, but also a fellow Boston University alum is Janine Schatz. Janine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, guys. Good to be here. Weird, weird to be inside the machine. <laughs> So Janine has been good enough to take some time out of her schedule to talk to us about one of her great loves, Boston University hockey. And so why don't you tell us a little bit, because you sort of have a background as sort of on both sides of the glass, so to speak. So tell us a little bit about your time at BU and your experience with BU hockey. Sure. I mean, it may, it may make sense to start like a few years before I even thought to apply to BU when the Islanders drafted Rick DiPietro, who went to Boston University for a year. And I was like, oh, okay. I never, I hadn't really been thinking about college yet and thought, I was like, oh, BU, interesting. Hockey, okay. That was really the first, like it came up on my radar. And then once I learned more about BU, I like, you know, urban campus, like you could pick any major you wanted. Boston's a great city. I was, I was on board and I enjoyed it. And then after it was my like the only school I ever I really wanted to go to and one of the perks that I also identified was that it had a thriving robust women's club hockey team um because I played I started playing ice hockey in the beginning of high school and so I was not going to be on like a D1 or D3 college roster but you know the idea of some place where I could still play on a women's team was was intriguing as well as knowing that the men's team was like the main sport on campus since we didn't have football, that once that came up, that like basically sealed the deal for me. So as you said, I went to BU not only as a fan of the thriving men's team, but also I got to play as well. It's funny you mention the the DiPietro thing because I sort of have my own little story about that. And mine is much more coincidental he was drafted in the 2000 uh, NHL draft, which was like the third week of June, as the, I guess as the, the draft is always around then, I would imagine. I know. Yep. And oh, I thought you were asking if the hockey draft was around in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, they didn't have a baseball draft until like sometime in the 60s. So my f- parents and I took a trip up to Boston right after the school year ended for me right after my junior year ended and as we tended to do on long car trips, much to my mother's chagrin, we would listen to WFAN all the way up to, to the, you know, to wherever it was that we were going. And later I went to BU obviously, and, you know, tried as I could whenever I was in a car to try and get WFAN with sort of mixed, mixed success, but for whatever, maybe it was a clear day that day or whatever. And we were able to listen to WFAN the whole way up and, we weren't really hockey fans in my family and, you know, we especially really weren't aware of things like the draft. So I kid you not, as we were driving onto the BU campus to go to the admissions building for our tour, we heard a flash, you know, a sports update on WFAN 
And that, you know, it was like the, you know, the every 20 minutes update that they used to do. And it was that Rick DiPietro from Boston University had been drafted first overall goalie for the Islanders. And so it was kind of funny because we were driving up and it was like, okay, wow, well, we're here. So there we go. I think that's an interesting point. I think the fact that it's probably the only school, I don't know, I mean, even even other schools that they compete with pretty heavily in hockey, I think those tend to have other sports that are number one. I mean, obviously the big rival is BC, but my guess is if you, you know, if you walk around the BC campus, it's probably at least, I mean, it's definitely second to football and maybe even third to basketball, I would think. So that, that always kind of struck me that sort of, it was the number one sport at BU, but at BC, it was just kind of one of many. And that applies to Harvard and, you know, all these other schools too. Yeah, that's true. I do think real quick, it's college hockey, especially, and there's a few other sports that it's the case in, but it's, it's very, it's interesting because it doesn't, it's not in most of the country. It's a lot, a lot in new England and then the upper Midwest, but the places it exists, it's monstrous. Yes. Yes. My school just happened to had a club hockey team that nobody knew who was on it and where it was. But then you hear about whether it's in Minnesota or new, all of new England, if you have a college hockey team, a varsity college hockey team, it's a huge deal or else you wouldn't have a varsity college hockey team at this point. So it's kind of like lacrosse in that way, like where you have schools that like Johns Hopkins, which are not big sports schools by any means, but then they have this one program that's this monster thing because it's such a regional sport. So the team gets started probably around when a lot of college hockey teams do in the late 19 teens, right around World War One. They don't really do much. They're independent through the 1940s and 50s. They don't join a conference. They join the ECAC, which stands for um, Eastern Co- Eastern Collegiate, Collegiate Athletic Association. Well, no, it would be Eastern College Athletic oh. Conference. Oh, that was oh, that was the back in the day. Yeah, well, ECAC would always be conference, not association, wouldn't it? No, oh, you're right. <laughs> I just remember chanting, because by the time I was there, we, we were at Hockey East, and it was easy AC, making fun of all the teams that stayed that stayed in that conference, whatever it was called. Anyway, I, and, I told you I was going to let you do the talking. Well, that's why, uh, that's why I'm the co-host, Janine, but thank you. Uh, thank you anyway. Um, I hadn't corrected you on anything in a while, so I enjoyed that. So I think they really come into prominence in the early 60s. And that's when they bring in the first of their two legendary coaches, which is a guy by the name of Jack Kelly. And he coaches the team from 62 to 72. And his last two years are BU's first two championships. They win the NCAA tournament in 1970-71. They defeat Minnesota uh, 4-2 to in the championship. And then in 71-72, they defeat Cornell in the championship. They actually shut them out four to nothing. And so this is right about when the team is really starting to come into prominence. And I didn't realize this until I started researching this, but Jack Kelly actually just passed away in the fall of 2000. He died at 93, and it was, you know, it was news in Boston, but probably didn't get out much beyond beyond the New England area. But I was kind of, I was disappointed that we didn't know that he had passed away when we did our in memoriam because he would have been a good guy to cover. You know, we did the one BU hockey story. We talked about 
Travis Roy, but we didn't we didn't get into Jack Kelly. Kelly was sort of one of these guys who was like he, he kind of like looked very much like a '50s hockey coach. If you see him, you know he's got the suit and the fedora and sort of you know the thick kind of you know 1950s style glasses. Very much looked like a Boston hockey coach, but he was kind of the guy who really I think you know got the program uh, into the prominence that it would that it would really achieve over the next several decades under Jack Parker. Yeah, the, th- the thing that always struck me, it strikes me going back over it, it's kind of, it's, it's discussed in the later eras as well, that a lot of their success was when he started recruiting Canadian players. Yes. Which, which had been kind of unheard of at the time because people in New England are obsessed with, you know, being from New England and people from New England being better than everybody else in the world. And so... You know, I guess it, it paid off and became, you know, part of the, the tradition for, for, you know, I guess that's, that's continues to today. And I guess he's kind of almost started the trend because now there are Canadians on every, you know, every roster in every American college team. Yeah, and that, that is definitely the case. And one of the things early on was that BU was really big on recruiting Canadians, and that was Jack Kelly. But BC stayed sort of very, very local recruited the local guys a lot more. So there started to be this tension in the 60s and 70s. And there, the rivalry with Boston College kind of starts in, you know, around this time in the 60s. And BC actually is coached by a guy by the name of Snooks Kelly, who in researching for this, I watched a DVD that Janine was good enough to turn me on to called Battle of Com Ave, which is shorthand for Commonwealth Avenue, if you're a Boston person, you know that. And it was all about the rivalry between BU and BC. And, you know, this, this Snooks Kelly, he was, he, he just with BC, he just seemed like a real character too. He was this sort of portly looking guy. And so, you know, one of the cool things about the rivalry, I think right from the beginning is you get a lot of characters, you know, a lot of characters in the, in the history of, of BU hockey and of the BU BC rivalry. And it's such a it's such a tribal sport up there. It's not just the colleges. It's just it's played so much youth hockey. I mean, where we grew up, and I, I would imagine it was probably the same, similar to where you grew up uh, in Long Island, Janine, not that far, you know, all things considered from where we were. There were kids that played youth hockey. It was definitely something that that happened. You talked about playing it yourself, but it's almost like a religion in new England. It really is. There's a ton of kids that as much as they love the Red Sox and as much as they love the Patriots now there and this, you know, Celtics, you know, I've had their moments. There's a weird thing about hockey in the greater Boston area that I don't think can be replicated with, with any other sport. And I still think that there are probably people in Boston for whom the, the Bobby Orr Bruins of the 1970s were kind of the, the apex of, of sports in the history of Boston. I mean, I, I, yes, maybe. I think I, I've heard enough story. I heard stories from some of the other young ladies that I played with in college who, like, the Red Sox were still really their religion. I remember we once went to a Bruins game, some of us on the women's team, and one of my teammates, we talked, like, oh, like, did, you know, because she was from the area and, like, you know, grew up in, in um, where did she grow up? One of, the, one of like, the cl- Roslindale. Someone was like, oh, did you and your sisters and your dad always, like, did dad take you to the games growing up? And she was like, no, we're mostly Red Sox fans. Mm-hmm. So even though she grew up playing hockey, it was still like the Red Sox are still that. But but I think I think speaking to your point, 
and having grown up, like my thing is that I, I wanted to play hockey since I became aware of it. And my parents were just too, they were so unfamiliar. They were just like, no, um, <laughs> like we don't, we don't think it's for girls. We don't want you to get hurt. We don't want to drive you. Like all the things that they heard about hockey was like violence practices at 5 a.m. Um, you're very short. They were just like, no. But then by the time I convinced them to let me play, as far as there being, I played in like a mixed boys and girls like developmental league for a year and then in just like a regular local house league where I was one of like a handful of girls that would kind of cycle in and out and there but there was a fledgling like girls travel team starting and then meanwhile when I went to BU I met all these girls many of whom were from the Boston area who had all like their girls travel team had started when they were 10 so it really I guess to your point it was it's it's a much it, it had been much more pervasive and I guess you know, just d- developed as part of the culture, probably, probably because of Bobby Orr. And like you said, I'm from Long Island where we have our own professional, professional hockey history that definitely influenced people. And I just, I wonder if it is that kind of like 10 year head start that they got because of that, or owing to it, Boston being an original six team in the NHL, that it goes back further than that, even before the Bobby Orr goal. But, you know, it definitely is, is much more of a, I guess much more of a celebrated sport, much more of a, a an ingrained sport than in other other places. So, right around the mid seventies is when they bring Jack Parker in to be the coach, and Parker had played with the team actually even before Kelly was the coach. He'd been on the team in the early nineteen fifties and had been sort of, you know, coaching hockey in various places before getting the BU job after Kelly retired in the early seventies, they also had a guy, um, they had a guy, go ahead, Andrew, I'm sorry. Cause it's weird. Cause I see, okay, they won two straight national championships and then they changed coaches. It looks like he left to became, become the GM and coach of the new England whalers who at the time were in the WHA and mm-hmm. within a couple of years were the Hartford whalers of the NHL. So that must have been why he left because he it, had announced his retirement before the before the the championship even was played. Oh really? They knew he was going, yeah. And I guess you figure if he just died this past year in 2020, you know, he he was old when he died. He was 93, but you know, that means in the early 70s, that's, you know, almost 50 years ago. He was still a young man. He was probably only in his mid 40s. So, yeah, and then I think he went on after that uh Jack Kelly to be I think he was the general manager maybe or the something the team president of the Pittsburgh Penguins in the 80s and 90s he was the so he was with the Whalers through the early 70s he was there till the early 80s and then he was the president of the Penguins from 93 to 01 so like right after their cups their back-to-back cups so but he was the president for looks like eight or nine years in Pittsburgh so we're gonna divert here for a minute but it'll all make sense in a second Janine, when you played on the women's team, it was still a club team? Yes. So when I started in the fall of 02, it was a club team. And there were rumors because they were, I guess, had started building the new arena at BU, again, this arena. Um, Or they at least had the plans in place. And I guess once it was finalized that the, because the, the, the reason that we'd always heard is that BU felt they should have, the women's team should be a D1 program, but it couldn't be supported with just the one arena. And once the plans were announced for the new one, we kind of knew it was only a matter of time. And so my, I think the summer between my sophomore and junior year, which would have been 04, it was announced that the team would be, there, there would be a D1 team starting in 
0506. And at the time, the policy at BU was that if there was a D1 program in a sport, there was no club team. And so that was kind of a, you know, for my, my teammates and I, that was, I mean, again, we, we kind of, we knew it was on the horizon once they announced they were building a shiny new, new building for the men's team. Somewhat, I guess, controversial in our, in our locker room where people, you know, really felt like the, the, the being on the women's team was their kind of sole social outlet. And their you know, kind of, it's like having a, it was like having a family, being on any team um, when you spend that much time together and, and devote yourself to, to playing a sport and having a common goal every year. It's, you know, it's kind of a big deal. So I mean, I, again, I had, um, I knew that I wasn't skilled enough to be on the team. I might, I might have put some effort into it because people, we were given, we were given every opportunity to kind of be a part of the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it further. So I don't want to do too much detail, but um, yeah, the, the women's team was, was club and had been very, had been very accomplished before I got there. And I think what started to happen was that, women who would have otherwise wanted to go to BU to be participate in the club team kind of saw that it may, it wasn't going to have a D one. There wasn't gonna be a D one opportunity there anytime soon. And they opted to go to other schools or, you know, we also had people who came who were very skilled hockey players, but didn't, didn't necessarily, they, they wanted to do other things. They didn't want to devote yeah. themselves to playing on a club team. They wanted to explore whatever else was going on, you know, on a vibrant, you know, university campus. So the short what? answer is yes, it was a club team at first. And then by the time I left it had gone D one. Was the coach who eventually coached the team when they became a D1 team, was he also the coach when they were a club team? No, he was not. He was so, um, Brian DeRocher, who is, his, is, he's still the women's club, the, the women's coach now. He was associate head coach under Coach Parker for a long time. And they announced, so this summer when they announced that the team was going to be D1, they announced that he was going to be the coach. And at first we were very confused. We were like, is he going to coach us? Like what's going on? But he was, he was busy setting up the, mm-hmm. the program, but he, he was around, he would, he would bring recruits to our practices and he got to know us a little bit. And he also, you know, I, so the, I guess I, you know, we can disclose that the, the way that you and I know each other is that we spent a semester in Washington and that was the last semester. It was the second half of the season, the last season of the BU club hockey team. So I had always planned to go to DC that semester. That was part of my like academic schedule for myself. Whereas a lot of my teammates couldn't believe that I was like leaving in the middle of the season to go like do a thing for my major to like intern in Congress. They were like, what do you mean you're not going to be here for the last, you know, to close out, close out the, the, the hockey team season. And I, it wasn't that I didn't want to be there. It just didn't, you know, didn't jive with my schedule. From what I heard and later found out that, you know, Coach DeRocher was very, um, welcoming and open that anyone who wanted to kind of like work out with the trainers who were going to be working with the women's team or wanted to like basically try out to walk on to the women's varsity team would be allowed to. A few of my teammates did. Some of, some of them did. If I was, I think younger and maybe had, would have had more of an opportunity than just one season to be on the team. But my attitude was kind of like, I wasn't going to bust my ass trying to make a team that I had no business being on just to sit on the bench out of some kind of courtesy. Our head coach was a woman named Kirsten Matthews, who did go on to be an assistant coach under DeRocher for a few seasons. And she is now the women's coach at St. Anselm College, which I believe is a D3, it's a pretty accomplished D3 program. I kind of wanted you to use the name Brian DeRocher, who was a player on the team that won the national championship in 1978. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But first, I have to ask Andrew if that name rang any bells for you. Brian DeRocher. Yeah, don't think about it too hard. Leo, I mean, the first thing I would think is Leo DeRocher's relative. That's his great uncle. His great uncle was Leo DeRocher. Great uncle? 
I'm sorry. How is he Leo DeRocher's great uncle? The other way around. Oh, yeah, that's wow. That's uh, you wouldn't have think thought that, but wow. It, it, yeah, no, Leo DeRocher was his great uncle, and he remembered playing cards with him, and he also was close enough with him that they actually attended his Hall of Fame induction. The Brian DeRocher and his father in, attended Leo's Hall of Fame induction in the early '90s. Anybody who's listening to this podcast probably knows, but Leo DeRocher, famous manager of the first the Brooklyn Dodgers and then later the New York Giants, also credited with one of the most famous quotes of all time. Well, two of them, one of them I can say, and that was the nice guys finish last, which isn't exactly the way it was said, but it's, you know, kind of persevered throughout the ages as a Leo DeRocher quote. He comes from a a, a good sports pedigree and uh, finally meets he meet, meets his uncle at some point in the 60s for the first great uncle for the first time. So lots of connections there. So Jack Parker becomes the coach in the mid 70s after Kelly leaves and after another guy sort of doesn't pan out after a season. And he would remain as the coach for another 40 years. Um. <laughs> Um, and Andrew just sent me a text with a story about uh, Leo DeRocher uh, and Jackie Robinson and the way they used to uh, trash talk each other. Um, we'll have to do an episode on that one time. We'll have to clear it with Arnie first to do an explicit language episode. But um, So I want to talk a little bit about Jack Parker, but Janine, as a fan and somebody you know who, who went to a lot more games than I did in college, what were your sort of impressions of, of Jack Parker, the coach? I guess definitely like kind of like a serious old school type, like, you know, wherever you were in the arena, you could be very aware of his emotional state. And I guess people, people become specifically in hockey. I mean, it's a lot of personalities, a lot of like rough around the edges types. And he definitely, definitely came off as a fitting in that mold, I guess. But at the same time, I guess he always seemed very kind of like grandfatherly to me and, kind of as I came to do to know more, it's sort of like back in the day, he was even more edgy and even more scream at the refs, like, you know, kick guys in the, in the, the behind verbally type than even during my time there. Yeah. I, he, so there's a great book called Jack Parker's wise guys, the national champion BU Terriers, the blizzard of 78 and the road to the miracle on ice. And it's written by a gentleman by the name of Tim Rapoli. I've read it very highly recommended if you want to learn more about the BU hockey team of that era. And yeah, Parker, I think, even though, as Janine said, he was always sort of a, a taskmaster and a serious coach. He was, I think, almost downright crazy in his early years. He was somebody who would smoke on the bench. He would sit on the bench in a college hockey game and smoke cigarettes. Now, even even in the 1970s, I don't think that was somebody that was common. He was a yeller. He was a screamer. They hadn't won any titles under Parker before the 77-78 season. And one of the things that happened immediately prior to this season is that there was the graduation of one of their star players, probably their most famous alum from a hockey point of view was Micah Ruzioni, who everybody knows later went on as the captain of the U.S. hockey team in 1980. And I believe, I mean, even... To this day, Ruzioni plays a pretty big role as sort of an ambassador for the BU hockey team. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I remember a couple times, one time even, I think it was, I know that, and we'll talk about the, the team that won the championship in 2009. There was another time when they were in the, the, the NCAA tournament and it was not in DC, but you know, I was at a, you know, a, a function watching the game in DC and I think Mike Aruzioni was even there. So he's very much sort of the face of BU hockey sort of publicly. If anybody, you know, and even in New England, he's probably the first one that people, people can mention. The strange thing is never played in the NHL. Some of those other guys from around that era went on to play in the NHL, but Mike Aruzioni, I don't, I think he probably had some tryouts or something like that, but I, I don't know if he was ever drafted. I don't know that he ever actually played in the NHL, but somebody who's managed to be not just in Boston, but nationally a big figure because of his role on the 1980 Olympic team. Yeah, he, I don't think he played in the NHL, but he played in some of the lower professional leagues at the time, I think, a lot of which are not even around anymore. But I have a feeling it also that I think he was because I'm telling you, he, if he graduated from BU in 77, because I know he was a little bit older, but even when the miracle time in the mirror, you know, the miracle Olympics occurred, mm-hmm. it might have just also been a case of him kind of missing the boat as far as being in his prime and not. I mean, so another significant thing that happened during my time at BU is that this the movie Miracle came out. Yes. Which of course featured the you know the four BU guys who were pivotal in the the U.S. upset underdog victory against the the Soviet Red Army. Yeah, something that I think might have been glossed over a little bit is that he he was a little bit I guess old one of the old like not veteran status but like a little bit older. So I guess just the, the timing for him didn't quite work out with that. And I don't know if it's a question of also wanted to go out on top. I mean, if you know, I feel like in in appearances and stuff, he's kind of joked about it that like. If he, you know, two inches to the left, then I would have had to get a job as a roofer. Um, <laughs> just, I've heard him in the, the HBO, I think, documentary from years and years ago. He said something like, you know, my friends tell me six inches to the left and you'd be blowing glass for a living. Yeah. So, I looked it up. He was born in October of 54. So he would have already been 25, halfway to 26 by the time the Winter Olympics in 80 happened. So certainly not old by any means, but for hockey standards, especially in that day and age, you're right. He may have just kind of missed the boat. Yeah. Aruzioni, as Janine alluded to, one of the four BU graduates that ends up on the 1980 Olympic team. The other three are Jim Craig, who's the goalie, uh, Jack O'Callaghan and Dave Silk. All four, I believe, uh, you know, born in Massachusetts. So a very local flavor on that 1980 men's hockey team. If you've seen the movie Miracle, you know that one of the big rivalries was between the BU hockey players and the players from Minnesota. And that didn't start when they got to the team in 1980. There's a story here in this book, the Jack Parker's Wise Guys that I was talking about, a story from a BU Minnesota game in the mid 1970s. And this is actually Brian DeRocher telling The story says, uh, Mike Fiddler walked over and challenged the entire bench. I'm sure they had great tough players on the Minnesota team, but that was part and parcel for Mike, the Charlestown edge and all of that. A minute and eight seconds into the NTA semifinal game, it didn't make a lot of sense. Chaos reigned and a half hour of unmitigated brawling raged on. Finally, the NCAA officials shut out the lights. So (laughs) college hockey was a very different atmosphere in the late 70s than it is now, whether it's players fighting. There's a story in here about how one of the players on the BU team had one of his friends from, you know, his local Boston area friends just slept in his dorm. 
the entire season, the entire school year, I think, which if you know anything about BU and the, uh, the way the guest policy was when Janine and I were there, that, that, that was no small feat, getting somebody to sleep in your room for the entire school year. And just the team in general was sort of, you know, even the book talks about rowdiness and the title of this book by Tim Rapoli is Jack Parker's Wise Guys. They had another guy on the team by the name of Dick Lambie, who was another local kid. And um, he at one point became upset with Jack Parker and because he had been taken off the power play. And uh, here's a dialogue from the book. It says, can I talk to you, coach, said Lambie. Sure, said Parker. When am I getting back on the power play? I don't know, said Parker, making a face. I'm tired of watching your stuff. I'll go through every single defenseman on this team before I go back to you. Undeterred, Lambie pressed on. Well, I'll tell you, you put me back on the power play. Your family will be eating steaks for a month. Parker was in disbelief. What is that, Dickie? Is that a bribe? Just making a statement, said Lambie. Put me back on the power play. Your family will be eating steaks for a month. What is he talking about, said Parker to himself. I found out later that some of his criminal friends in Worcester would hijack a truck full of meat. <laughs> he had some extra steaks floating around that he could get if he needed them. Oh, Dickie, he was something. So it was sort of that hard scrabble working class Boston atmosphere. But this 77-78 season is a really unique season in BU lore. And it's really an interesting season for a few reasons. And the first of them is probably what happens in the bean pot. And maybe Janine can just tell our audience a little bit about what the bean pot is all about. Because if you're not from Boston and you're not a a college hockey fan, you might not know about the magic that is the bean pot. Uh, The bean pot is an annual tournament played the, the first two Mondays in February for the men and the first two Tuesdays in February for the women between BU, BC, uh, Harvard, and Northeastern. And I guess that it's a rotating basis as far as which teams play each other in the first round, and then the second week is the championship round. As an aside, the, like I said, there's, there's a men's bean pot, which is the, obviously the big draw and the most popular ticket in town around that time. And there's also been a women's bean pot going back however many decades. and. Um, even though BU did not have a D1 team, the BU women's club team had the pleasure of playing against the D1 schools to which we were assigned if any given year, which led to some... You got some scores there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our... I, I saw a 24 nothing in there. Oh, yeah. Of course. I'm sure there was. I know my, my sophomore year, I guess, one of the equipment managers for the men's team who would later go on to be the equipment guy for the women's team when it became D1, he told us that if we scored a goal against BC, he would wash all of our equipment. And we scored that goal. <laughs> and our equipment smelled slightly less bad for like a week after he washed it all. Isn't but that, that, like, that was the motivation is that we, you know. Isn't that um, his job to wash the equipment? <laughs> not, he wasn't our, we were a club team. He oh, wasn't, he, wasn't he was our the equipment men's equipment manager. Yet. Okay, you're right. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. No, I'm he, sorry. Well, like I said, he later went on to he went on to be assigned to the women's team, but and he did he did, he would sharpen our skates and do it, but like it wasn't really his job. It was mm-hmm. just more like a favor. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so that that was par for the course. I mean, playing even just like doing our warm up around. Like I remember being in Harvard's arena and seeing like they they had Olympia like Olympians on their team, and just like walking by them, these like clearly women who are much more athletic than I could ever 
ever aspire to be. The Bean Podge is a very competitive. It's essentially an exhibition game, but it's for the biggest bra- it's, it's for bragging rights in the you know the the biggest you know I would argue the biggest college hockey realm that there is. So, and it holds an interesting place in sports in New England because it always starts or it almost always starts the day after the Super Bowl. So it's kind of, you know, sports is, you know, hitting that that famous February lull. And at least if you're in Boston or in New England and you're a college hockey fan, you have this other thing coming up with these great rivalries. As you can imagine, BU and BC dominate. BU has 30 beanpot first place finishes, BC 20, Harvard 11, and Northeastern 7. In fact, one of the stories that I heard in my preparation for this was of Mike Ruzioni in 1980. Love the story. In Lake Placid. Go ahead. Go ahead and tell the story, oh, Janine. Okay. <laughs> I think they were getting, they were getting ready to play the Soviet team. And I guess this, this is 1980 where news didn't travel quite as fast. And they're like literally getting ready to go on the ice to play like a very important game. And they, I guess they get word from a security, from somebody, they get where word trickles down that uh, Northeastern won the bean pot. And it's like the words that like Rizzo says to somebody else, like, hey, you hear this? Northeastern was the bean pot. And they joke that that was the other miracle that happened in 1980, that uh, North to Northeast, for Northeastern to actually win a bean pot. <laughs> so in 78, BU, and then I guess the other thing that we should mention is this is played at the, you know, at one time the Boston Garden and then now the, the TD Bank North Garden and all of the various banks that that arena has been named after over the last 25 years. It's, you know, I think it might be the only opportunity until the, you know, until the Frozen Four, until the, you know, until the NCAA championships that these teams get to play in, you know, professional basketball and hockey arena. So the Beanpot was always played at the Boston Garden. And there was this crazy blizzard during the first game of the first, you know, the first week of the Beanpot in 1978. BU beat BC. 12 to 5 and there were fans that were stuck in the arena i think for like several days and they like you know got story about a guy sleeping in a you know sleeping in a luxury box for two or three nights just a crazy crazy story and the the crazier part too is that in the in the the same the wise guys book they talk about how the, the the pa announcements in the arena kept saying like the last train is leaving like we recommend everyone leave and people just stayed and that's all you need, <laughs> that's all you need to know about ball, college hockey fans in boston they said no well, we want to we want to stay here and finish watching this game we don't care that there's a, a major weather event that's going to strand us in this arena for a week we, we, we want to stay and watch this game yeah it was so so harvard played northeastern in the first game and then BU beat BC 12 to 5 in the second game, which I'm sure when you're trying to beat a blizzard, having a 17 goal game probably doesn't doesn't help anything. And, and there was a line here that I wanted to read. While you're looking for that, I was I read an article, I don't probably from a few years ago where they were talking about this. And I guess during that game, they started making announcements like, hey, you really might want to consider leaving, especially those probably people who didn't venture out knowing the weather was coming. And then I guess at some point the announcements changed from you really should leave to basically at this point you have to stay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of missing the boat. Literally, you've missed every form of transportation yes. out. So, you know, I guess then there was 
sorry, Dan, if you found it, go ahead. I no, I think we're on the same article. We're, we're looking at the same article, and, and I'll throw this up in the in the show notes. The other thing that's interesting, if you look at this article, is that, um, th- did you see this, Andrew? Did you see the sports cast or the newscast that they show about this? Len Berman embedded in the article? Len Berman. Janine, do you know who that is? Yes, I know who Len Berman is. Please. <laughs> okay. Please. <laughs> Another New Yorker. Um, yes, yeah, so I had no idea Len Berman was ever even a newscaster in Boston, but there he is telling the story of the bean pot with a a very night, late 1970s haircut. So the, the team is basically stranded for most of you know, not there's no class for a week, which was another thing that at BU you didn't really see much of in those days. I think most of the team spent their time drinking, uh, you know, several days at a time as a at a bar called the Dugout, which you're a mm-hmm. BU fan. If you're a BU uh, student, you, you know about the Dugout. The other couple of things I think that are interesting to talk about from this 78 season, first of all, it was kind of the beginning of the sort of prominence of Jim Craig, who is the BU goalie and then would go on to be the goalie on the U.S. Olympic team. 78 is sort of when he really becomes a really, really good goalie. And he, unlike Aruzioni, does go on to play in the NHL for at least for a few years, kind of bounces around. 78 is also the only time that BU and BC play against each other in the the finals and it's played i think in providence i believe Providence. so you know it's this whole sort of new england you know the two boston teams playing only about 45 minutes away and then the other part of this that's really interesting that that's kind of a sad story is that throughout this season unbeknownst to most people and i think really even sort of unbeknownst to most of the players on his own team, Jack Parker, you know, Coach Parker, his wife is is very sick with cancer and, you know, young woman, I think she's got, you know, they have two young kids, two kids under the age of 10, I believe. And she actually passes away, you know, towards the end of the season. And, you know, he's able to have this great professional triumph in the midst of all of this sort of sort of uh, personal adversity and they they always said that in a way um and again this is in this 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 Rapalai book uh jack parker's wise guys that the death of his wife leads to him maybe to, to calm a little bit more to put things in perspective he quits drinking a couple of years later he quits smoking so no more smoking on the bench and you know it's kind of still an intense coach but but sort of mellows a little bit and that in the lore of BU college hockey, that 1978 team kind of uh, goes down for their their rowdiness, their the reflection of the city in which they play, and also for being a, a you know sort of a stepping stone for what would become probably the most famous hockey team in American history, that 1980 team a couple of years later. So. Lots of interesting stuff there from from the, that 1978 team. Do either of you have anything to add? I want to jump forward a little bit here. Yeah, the only the only thing, speaking about that, I know, I don't know if it was because of his wife being so ill, but he, Coach Parker would bring his kids along with him, his two daughters, like they, they you know, his, his older daughter, who was, like you said, about nine or 10 at the time, who would be on the bus with these like college hockey dudes, just like watching them play cards, like watching them. And they, they let her hang around. So as much as they were wise guys, I think they also brought out that there was this kind of 
I don't know, a certain, a certain kind of respectability or softness that they, they let this 10 year old girl come along for the ride with them. And that mm. even, I think it was said she was particularly close with Dave Silk who wanted her to be the older daughter, Allison, to be in the team picture when they won the championship and that she was too shy to go in. But I just thought it was a very nice, another nice little element of everything as, as, as weird as that must've been to have, like you said, the, uh, you know, this like professional sports triumph literally weeks after his wife passed away. Such a personal tragedy. Absolutely. And I think I wanted to touch it that I thought was interesting looking at that 78 team was, you know, the four years before that they'd won the conference tournament and then, you know, not followed through and be able to win a national championship. But then in 78, they actually lost the semifinal game to Providence five to one and then turned around and went on that run in the NCAA, you know, and, and won the, the national championship despite having lost in the tournament. Well, and not only that, this, uh, this is another very niche thing that we don't spend too much time on, but I didn't even realize that they only made it into the Frozen Four based on, they had to play a play-in game, I guess, because they had lost the, in the conference tournament. They had such a great season where they were basically undefeated until the playoffs. But then because they lost the ECAC, they lost in the ECAC semifinal, the ECAC committee, I guess, couldn't decide who to send to the championship who who who, to set, who from the conference to send to the Frozen Four, and so it was going to be either BU or Providence, and then they so they they forced them to play this extra game, which BU then won, and so of course Providence is really pissed, and I guess you know obviously they they have come along from that, but again that also I don't know if that would fly today. I, don't, I guess you know every every conference and every sport has its policy on what the tiebreaker is and what the circumstances are that would that would lead to a play in game. But that, that was, I, I hadn't known about that until reading this, this Rappelai book. I mean, that's, it sounds insane. Yeah. I think I, I'm, you know, my background is much more of basketball, but it, it just amazes you how sort of strange the qualifications were for these tournaments. I mean, you know, the, the NCAA basketball tournament at one point, you could only get in it if you won your conference, right? So you had a conference like the ACC and you'd only have one team in the, I believe that's the case. I, I could be remembering that wrong. And it's just very, you know, it was always strange. And then they, they, at some point they realized that, Hey, we ought to just get the best teams in and not make everybody jump through a hundred hoops. And one thing they did with basketball, I know you want to move on to is like back then the regions were actually regions. And yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. was able to win as much as they were, was that obviously they were a really good team, but they were on the West region. So they didn't have to go through, you know, they didn't have to, they had a much easier road to the final four than the other teams did, but that's not, mm-hmm. you know, that's an epic, that's a, topic for another episode that's the topic for the last two episodes is college basketball and LaSalle and and um, and, and teams that would have beaten UCLA but we can move on. <laughs> yeah if you listen to the last two episodes would have not at time of recording those have not even been posted yet in fact they haven't even been edited yet if I'm going to be totally honest about uh, my slacking but um, by the time you hear this you'll have heard that so I want to fast forward here Parker won three titles 95, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I think it's probably maybe the least storybook of the three, but they were a very good team. The best player was probably Chris Drury, who's the only BU hockey player with at least 100 goals and 100 assists. Uh, You know, later spends a bunch of time in the NHL. I remember him on the Rangers. I think, didn't the Rangers, and then I'm going to really show my hockey ignorance, when did the didn't the Rangers make it into the Stanley Cup Finals? When was that? Do you guys remember? 
Oh, I think it was I, 11. It was 11 or 12 because they lost to the Kings in five. Yeah, I wanted to say, oh, wait, but 11, maybe, it's, maybe it was 11. I remember Drury being on a, one of the Ranger teams that went deep. I, I don't know whether it was the team that went to the finals or was one of the teams that went deep. I think I also remember him sort of having a reputation as being kind of like a pest. I don't know if maybe, maybe I'm confusing him with somebody else, but I seem to remember watching a playoff game one time and he was like, harassing the goalie and sticking his stick in his face and everything. So th- that may not be him, but I, I feel like I remember him being the guy who, who did that. So that's a good team. 95 Um, the following year. Um, you know, in fact, the year that they, the game that they raised their banner to the roof after the 95 championship is the whole Travis Roy story. The 11 seconds. We, we mentioned him in our in memoriam episode, so I won't relitigate the whole story there, but that's something that sort of becomes a, you know, a BU Lores as player who was, you know, paralyzed 11 seconds into his first, first college hockey game, his first shift. So that sort of adds to the lore. And, you know, they're then, you know, they're decent for the next couple of years. They, they lose in the NCAA final four and, you know, in the, in the, the second round, you know, not the second round, I'm sorry, in the semifinal game that year, they lose in the championship to, North Dakota in 97 and you know and they're, they're just kind of around you know they they win a couple of uh, hockey east titles and they don't win a championship again until 09 which is about 4 years after I graduate and 3 years for Janine before we get into to sort of that 09 team cuz that's such a crazy story Janine sort of maybe from like a just in general you know atmosphere but also kind of you know sort of maybe an on the ice perspective too who were sort of some of the great players great moments great kind of whatever during the time that you were there sure 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 i was gonna say i hope we can talk about 0506 team which was my senior year they the team was very good they won the bean pot that year they won i remember when all was said and done they won three three championships and it, it like we it, it looked like we were planning, mean, I had a friend, we were planning on driving to Wisconsin to go to the Frozen Four. Like that's how, that's how confident we were in, in the team, the team making it. As far as some of the players, um, I'm trying to think. One of the bigger stories from the men's team when I was at BU was a goalie named John Curry, who had been, I think he was like a, basically a recruited walk-on, where they basically said, we don't have a scholarship for you, but if you want to come and like try to be the third goalie, you're welcome. So he basically was thought, it was thought that he was going to basically ride the bench for the entire time there, which in, is not atypical to have just a third goalie who hangs around just in case and might never see any action during his entire career. But I guess it would have been the beginning of the 04-05 season. It was thought that there was, there was a junior goalie and like a very highly touted Canadian freshman goalie who it was thought were going to sh- split the time. And it, it, like as far as share, like, you know, 1A, 1B netminder situation. But they went to some tournament out West to start the season. And both those guys got off to very shaky starts. And everyone was kind of like, oh, well, they're not going to play the third guy. Like this Curry, who, like, who even is he? And that's the story of how John Curry became the starting goalie for the, for the BU team for the next three years. So mm. That was always kind of, a, I, was, I always thought that was kind of a cool story. Dave Vandergulik was one of the more um, highly talented forwards. He, was, he played some time in the NHL after graduating. That season, defenseman Matt Gilroy was a freshman. He, w- he would go on to be one of the co-captains of the 09 championship team. And he also won the Hobie Baker Award as the best player in college hockey. 
he was probably one of the best guys that they've had as far as just, you know, great player that I can, you know, I remember him and I wasn't even really, I wasn't even there when he was there, but that's just a remember. He actually started his NHL career with the Rangers. It looks he did, like but. he did. He, and he did, you know, he didn't, unfortunately didn't last very long in the NHL. He, I don't know. It just didn't, I just didn't really pan out for him as, as, as you know, tends to happen. I mean, you, you, as much as college hockey has kind of come along and produced some great players, it's kind of, I don't know. It's still been however many years since then. So maybe by now it's kind of gone a step further, but you kind of tend to have that happen. I think maybe the international aspect of that doesn't help either because, you know, pretty much every NFL football player plays college football in the United States. You know, they're Americans, you know, a little bit less with basketball, but still the vast majority. Whereas you got these guys not only coming in from Canada, but coming in from Russia and Europe. So even just looking this up, BU hockey doesn't have a single player in the NHL in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But, you know, it's just such a college hockey in the in the grand scheme of nhl hockey is is just such a it's a such a smaller sliver absolutely it's not the only path in like it is in the other sports where it's- right and it, it to the extent that it is a path in it's often thought of as the least you know least heralded when you think about guys coming from junior or guys coming from you know the other Euro- european leagues and I guess the thing that I would say another player um, Brandon Yip was also a freshman on that team. He also went to, went went on to play in the NHL. And then I think also you know a lot of them are guys who if if they can make it to the NHL they may not last that long. And then they may go and play like you know in in Europe or other you know other random places. You know perhaps an opportunity to extend their career a little bit in, instead of you know basically just hanging it up. And the other thing I would say again about the 06 team is just that the, the team had a, I think they basically didn't, they didn't lose a game all of second semester and re- really seemed like they were forging ahead, at least to the Frozen Four, maybe, maybe more. And to that point, as far as when I'd been there, it kind of seemed like we, we knew that they were, we were always going to make like the Hockey East tournament and could possibly win it or at least do well enough to then make the NCAA tournament. And then usually it's like we would lose to like some Western team that we hadn't played before that was just bigger and faster. I mean, I remember like lo- losing five out of North Dakota in one game or, lo- or, you know, losing to this or that other team that we hadn't, that, that they weren't that familiar with. But in 06, in winning the Hockey East title, I think BU beat, I want to say New Hampshire, like nine to one in the semifinal game. And then BC s- in overtime. I see the Hockey East semifinal, they beat New Hampshire nine to two. Yeah. And then they beat the BC, they beat BC in the championship game in overtime. And the following weekend, they beat, I think, Nebraska Omaha in the, in the first round game, like nine to nine to one or whatever that score was. Nine to two. Janine, you're proving your value to this podcast by the minute. <laughs> as I, as I stare at Wikipedia and you rattle these off uh, from, and then, from memory. So then, they drew BC in that, you know, the regional, you know, finals with the winner moving on to the frozen four. And this team had beaten BC, you know, I think five times up to that point, considering their, maybe it was four times because there's three regular season meetings and there beat the bean pot final. No, it was five times because it was the three regular season meetings, the bean pot final. And then the week before, and then the week before the hockey East final. And we were like, you know, it's always like nerve wracking these games. We were like, no, you know, if there was ever a time where this is going to happen, this is going to be it. And as you're seeing on the Wikipedia right now. They, they didn't lost. just lose. They smoked it, them. No. And it was like, it was, again, being the fan of a team and watching them all season and knowing them inside and out. And again, having been on the women's team 
getting to know the players a little bit and just seeing, you know, seeing them around campus as human beings, as well as like, you know, heralded athletes to then come and see that it was just, it was very, very disheartening. It was, I mean, the, 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 the biggest heartbreak that you could have as a, as a, as a fan of something. And then, you know, to, to make, to make matters worse, I just so happened to be like walking down Bay State Road the next day. And who do I see? But several members of the BU men's hockey team. Oh, geez. And ordinarily, this would be a cause for like, oh, maybe they'll say hi to me. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll, maybe we'll exchange a little nod. And I wanted nothing. I, I just, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, I didn't yeah. know what. And of course, one of them shouts my name from across. I didn't even think we were friends, me and this guy. But he, they, they maybe had had a few um, consolation beverages this day. He was very eager to say hello. He had some choice words about how other people thought they were failures. And I had to comfort this young gentleman to assure him that he was not a failure. That we appreciated their efforts and really felt felt horrible for what happened and knew that they tried their best and that was it. But yeah, that was that was the like lasting imprint of of my uh, my time at BU as a hockey fan was this this uh, unfortunate end of the season. Yeah, and to have it happen at the expense of your biggest rival, not only the fact that you'd beaten them so many times already in the year, which is really kind of a strange like that's very much a college college hockey thing is to play a team so many times yeah. in a season and then to not only lose but to just get just get totally smoked but they make up for it in 2009 and uh, 2009 I just want to see it that is sort of one of the most famous famous games probably in the history of college hockey now college hockey is not you know, they don't have a lot of games that are deep in the canon of sort of mainstream sports attention, but they they have a decent year and then they go to the Frozen Four, which is, the, you know, the NCAA hockey tournament's only 16 games. What they do is they they play the first two rounds on a weekend. I think it's actually coming up. Um, It's coming up this coming weekend, although yes. by the time you people yes. listen to this, it'll be, you know. It'll be the you know it'll be the third week of baseball season probably, but um, it's coming up this this last weekend in March, and then they take a week off because the NCAA is not letting anything mess with the Final Four, and then they play the 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 Frozen Four, the the hockey you know the following the following weekend. And I'm not you know I'm not a you know not a devout college hockey fan, especially for those couple of years I was living. You mentioned Roslindale before; that's where my wife and I lived for a couple of years when we were up there. I've gotten a lot more into it after having lived up there and gone to a bunch of games. It's kind of a nice change of pace. So, you know, this Saturday when we sit down to watch four basketball games in a row, you know, it'd be nice to also have the hockey on there. So it's, it's fun. If, you know, if you're a sports fan, it's fun to have it as like sort of a second, a second thing that's going on during the whole March Madness time. So anyway, BU wins their first two games and then they go two weeks later. And I really remember this because this frozen four was in DC. My wife, she wasn't my wife then. She wasn't even my girlfriend then. We were, you know, we knew each other. And a bunch of my other friends went to both of the games in DC. One was on a Thursday night and one was on a Saturday night. It was Easter weekend, which comes into play in a way for me that I think Andrew will will appreciate. But you you always refuse to watch television on Easter weekend, I believe, because you've said before that you believe it should be uh, for the Lord, I believe. <laughs> Where are you going with this story? Is that correct? That is not correct. 
but we'll we'll get to that in a second. So now, Janine, you actually you came to DC. You were you were at the final game, right? Just so just the championship I was, game. I was going to say it's also Passover weekend some of the time for those of us of that particular faith, and so that particular year, Passover was starting on the Thursday night, which was the night of the 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 Frozen Four semifinals. And so I was looking at the calendar, looking, looking at this, thinking like, oh, BU's having a great season. Like maybe we can, and, and like the Frozen Fours in DC, when is that going to happen? Like when are the Frozen Fours could be in Madison? They could be in, you know, I think, I think one year it was in Tampa. I mean, it was just, I had my eye on it because it was like actual driving distance, mm-hmm. um, you know, from where I am. But I was looking at that Thursday day and I was like, okay, well, I can't, I was like, I'm not going to pay tickets and arrange to go to DC for a whole long weekend. And I was also in law school at the time, which was another consideration about missing class and study time, my internship and stuff. So I was kind of just looking at that one. And I was like, well, if they make, I was like, if they make the championship game on Saturday, maybe we can just go to that. You know, and I wasn't, I didn't want to get my hopes up. I wasn't sure that it would actually happen. And then, so during trying to be pious and participating in Passover, I was, was also trying to check in on the scores and let, later that night found out that BU had won the first, their semifinal game and would in fact be playing for the national championship. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. And my then fiance, now husband was basically like, we have to go to this game. Like, if we don't go to this game, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So we found tickets on I think stub. I guess it must have been StubHub, and it was to the point where it was so close to the game time that we had we wound up driving down to DC on Saturday morning, picking the tickets up at some like weird FedEx pickup facility because I guess there was no the tickets couldn't be mailed to us, and I guess they couldn't they also wouldn't do a box office situation. So and there were no electronic tickets. Really, weren't something that was out there yet. Exactly, exactly. This was basically this was this was the best option they could come up with at the time. And of course that was its own nerve-wracking thing where what if we drive to DC and our tickets aren't the, the tickets aren't really tickets. Like you know, you never know with these things. But um yeah, we you know so we did that and we made it basically just in time for the game. So I want to back up a step here because I would imagine that the BU, you know, if we have folks that are BU hockey folks that are listening to this, they'll they'll remember that Saturday night game because it was just, I mean, again, even if you put aside any sort of fact that, you know, we were fans of this school, this was a crazy sports story, this Saturday night game they played against Miami of Ohio. This is like, you know, insane. You know, this was on Sports Center. you know, in the first five minutes because they won this crazy game. And we'll talk about that in a second. So, but the Thursday night game, they played against Vermont, and that in and of itself was sort of a crazy game. And I remember because this was the game I watched, and we'll get to that in a second. But they were down, they they were down three to two and four to three. They ended up winning in overtime, and the winning shot was deflected off of a Vermont player in order for BU to win the game five. I guess it would have been five to four. And so as crazy, you know, in retrospect, what happened two nights later was crazy, but they really got off to a crazy start, even just that first Thursday night. And I remember thinking to myself, like, God, that was such a crazy game and not really expecting to be all that into it. But then after watching this crazy game on a Thursday night in Vermont, I'm like, I got to watch this championship game. So... (laughs) For a very long time, I, on the Saturday night before Easter, would drive to Pennsylvania to spend the night with my grandparents. And 
you know, we would have dinner and then we, you know, we'd go have breakfast Easter morning and then I'd drive back to DC where they lived in DC was only about two and a half hours from, I'm sorry, where they lived in Pennsylvania was only about two and a half hours from, from DC. And I had been at their house, you know, I think the year before it, at, at Easter and they had had ESPN and, you know, they're old people. They go to bed early. So I was like, all right, you know, this game started at eight o'clock or whatever. I'm like, well, I'll go to bed by nine o'clock and I'll turn on this game. And so I go to their house and I had watched ESPN at their house before. I, I had swear it. They go to bed and I turn on the TV and I can't find ESPN. Somehow, whatever their kind of, you know, bare bones, minimal cable package that they have didn't have ESPN. And I should just point out, because I, I wasn't there. I was at our house in Alexandria. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting you were living in D.C. I forgot all about that part and of I, it. I was happened to be watching this game. Our grandparents live, well, our, our grandparents lived in basically Pennsylvania Dutch country in an old folks home retirement community at nine o'clock going, I'll just go find a bar where I can watch college hockey. (laughs) It it was not going to happen. So for anybody who's wondering why that wasn't an option, I actually kind of was sort of somebody who I actually had a, a quote unquote smartphone before a lot of other people did because working where I worked, I had a Blackberry, you know, work issued Blackberry and, you know, you couldn't do anything on it really, you know, you couldn't do, you know, there are no apps or anything like that, but you, you could get on the internet and you could check, check a score, check whatever. And I remember watching this, you know, checking the score and with like two minutes left in the third period, Maybe even less than that. I checked it. Um, one minute, yeah, yeah, but I don't remember when I checked it though. I know it was one minute. They were down three one until one minute. I don't know if I checked it then or checked it right before. You know, a little bit before that. And so finally, I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna go to sleep. You know, I went to you know went in the guest bedroom at their house, and it was funny too because of all the friends I had from BU, they were probably all too busy having fun to to, to be messaging me. But I get a text from my friend Andy from high school who, you know, lives in the Annapolis area and he and I go to would go to Maryland football games and everything. And he sends me a message and he's like, holy, you know what? This BU hockey thing is crazy. And so I get up and I saw that they had won four to three to win the national championship. So Janine, since you're the one who was there, why don't you maybe tell us a little bit about that night and your experience? Oh, okay. You know, it was, again, incredibly exciting, but also very exhilarating, like, especially after the, what had happened in 06, the disappointment, it's kind of like being, being on, being on the edge of either like the greatest thing to ever happen to you or like complete and total utter heartbreak. I mean, the things I can remember, we are, our seats, my husband and I were sitting pretty up, pretty far up in the, I guess the, you know, the upper bowl area um, of the arena. And we happened to be seated behind two women who were, it seemed like they, they were maybe Capitals t- season ticket holders or Capitals fans. They mm-hmm. were, they were not, they were not college hockey people. I could tell it sort of became, I think they, cause I think BU, I want to say BU had a one nothing lead early in the game. And you know, all of the, I guess there were more BU fans in the arena than Miami of Ohio fans. And these, these two women were sort of, they, they picked up on the rooting for the underdog situation so once Miami got out to their lead, 
these women were like the biggest Miami of Ohio Red Hawks fans in the entire universe. And they were like, really like, yeah, but you sucks. Like they, they were really, so that like that, in addition to being like completely unnerved by the fact that we were down, I was like, we drove all the way here to watch this game. And now BU is down three. Like, I'm like, it's happening again. Like the disappointment is happening. It's coming for me. And these, these people in, in close proximity to me didn't, didn't make it, uh, didn't make it any easier. Yeah, I just remember, you know, being, being, but also, you know, again, when it's your team, when you know how good they can be, you have that kind of like shred of hope. And so what really, what happened was they were, they were down 3-1 towards, you know, latter stages of the third period. And then they, um, you know, it gets like, oh, they're going to pull the goalie. Is that even going to work? Why the hell would anyone do that? You know, time comes. And, uh, you know, once, once they made it 3-2, you know, it was, I don't know, it's like, well, anything can happen now. and then. Again, I, I should have reviewed this video beforehand because I'm, I'm going to show my my fuzziness and that the fact that this was almost 12 years ago. I want to say one of the one of the goals was like a very kind of more like a scrappy random goal, and one one of them was one of them was like a, I feel like a nice very nice pass from Gilroy. So it was like really just like not only are they coming back, but they're doing it like with style skillfully. It was like a nice like a very well executed like we've prepared for this situation when we need a goal like in a really critical a really critical juncture of the game. You know, I remember being very relieved that they were able to, you know, score the goal to make it 3-2 and then score the goal to, to tie it with only a few seconds left. And then everything's settling down and everyone kind of recovering from, the, like, the shock of it, the game going into overtime and being like, all right, we're, you know, we're still in it. And then realizing that we had to sit through overtime, just complete and total, like, like complete and total nervous wreck. Gilroy had the assist on the one that tied it with 18 seconds left, so that's probably the one you were Yes, of. yes. Dan Shaughnessy, who, when my wife hears this, will make a face at because he's he's a he's a Boston sports columnist. I like him, and he's he's one of these guys. One of the cool things about sports in Boston is it's just you know there's there's just so much there as far as all the Celtics history, and then the Red Sox, and you know now the Patriots and college football, and you know you know you college basketball even. And uh, do you say do you invoke college football talking about Boston, Boston College Flutie? Okay, you not modern day. <laughs> this is hello old sports. Allison's right about Dan Shaughnessy, though. <laughs> he he. If you know anything about Dan Shaughnessy, or if you only know one thing, he was the one who coined the term "curse of the Bambino" for all of the you know the the struggles that the Red Sox had had after you know for eighty some odd years after selling Babe Ruth to the Yankees. He called it quite simply the greatest college hockey game ever played. And it really is. I mean, if you just think about the improbability, again, not being a hockey expert, just knowing, um, you know, that when a team pulls its goalie, I always kind of view pulling a goalie as sort of like when a team is up, is down by eight points with 30 seconds left and they start intentionally fouling. It's like, okay, we're all just going through the motions here. Like you, you, you can't not do it, but we know, this isn't going to do anything. So, yeah. And so, you know, to have them come back and win and to do it on ESPN with, you know, Gary Thorne, who longtime Oriole broadcaster and, you know, has done MLB playoff games. And I think he did some NFL for a while. Gary Thorne, a well-known sports broadcaster. I think that sort of added to the gravitas of it a little bit. So probably I would say the the greatest moment in, in, in BU hockey history and the fact that it happened for me, at least, even though I wasn't there, it was meaningful for a lot of my friends and you know people that I know because it, having it happen in D.C. and being able to be there for it. I mean, if you think about it, 
not a lot of college hockey goes on in Washington, D.C. And so to, to just sort of if you're a BU alumni in Washington, D.C., and there are a ton of us, to have something like that happen to happen in the city that you're living in as an adult is, is pretty cool. All right. So I just want to touch on a couple more quick things. I think we would be a little bit remiss if we didn't note that the coaching tenure of Jack Parker doesn't necessarily have the most noble end. He's he's the coach on this great team in 09. I just want to look here and see. I don't know exactly what his last season was. I don't know, Janine, if you It was 2012-2013. 2012-2013, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. And maybe I'll just jump forward real quick. He was replaced by David Quinn, who was a former player of his. I believe Quinn was on the team. Was he on the team that won the championship in the 90s? I bet he probably was, right? Um, I know. He was a bit old. I want to say he was a bit older than that. He was an assistant coach on the 09 championship team. So maybe we'll sort of just take this in a little bit of reverse order here. Quinn coaches the team for one, two, three, four, five years from 13 to 18. The best year is probably or is his second year where they lose the championship to Providence four to three in the in the championship game. I remember. Yeah, yeah that was a heartbreaking game. Speaking of. That, and that was a game because BU was up three to two going into the third period of that game. They. They didn't necessarily lose it as dramatically as they had won in 09, but it was another one of these sort of, you know, dramatic end of the game wins, end of the game losses, I guess, if you're a BU fan, if you have a BU perspective. I think that was the game I remember watching at a bar in, in Arlington and, and Michael Ruzioni came, came to, you know, came to the game watch party for, for a brief period of time. Quinn then goes on to coach the New York Rangers. And this is another one of those things where what's the case when we record versus when we, uh, <laughs> when we actually air. But dawned on me probably later than it should have why there are all these conversations about the Rangers trading for Jack Eichel, who was the star of that. Was he on that 15-team, Eichel? Yes, he won. I think he won the Hobie Bigger that year, too. I feel like is, that was his one college. I feel like he only played one year at BU, Eichel. Yeah, he might. I remember going to see him play, but I don't think it was when I was living there. I think it was when we were visiting before we moved up there. But obviously, the reason why the Rangers are so keen on trying to trade for Jack Eichel is because, you know, their their coach was his his college coach. So, you know, Quinn had a very nice. Go ahead, Ange. I'm sorry. He's going to take shots at the Rangers about being an also ran in their own city and just being thoroughly outclassed. And they're going to have to watch the Islanders win the Stanley Cup this year. I was I was going to say that the Rangers are talking about trading for Eichel because they have their heads up their own behinds and think that they're entitled to every, you know, every superstar who may be on the trading block because obviously everyone wants to come play for that cesspool of organization. Not a lot of Ranger fandom on the Hello Old Sports <laughs> podcast. I'm sadly Sunday. I actually kind of, we, we, don't, we, we don't need to dwell on this, um, but I, I'm kind of a fan of all three teams and like to see them all three do well. But that's, uh, that's a different, that's a different, that's a story for a different time. So, Maybe just talk a little, we can just talk a little bit about kind of the culture that had emerged, I guess, is the best way to put it. Jack Parker is basically, now he's an older man, and so who knows just how long he actually would have lasted as the coach, but his departure is accelerated by what gets discovered as sort of this kind of culture of entitlement among his players. It starts, as a lot of things tend to do in college sports when teams get into disciplinary problems and we talked about this last week when we talked about LaSalle and Gary Neal players accused of 
some degree of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, that type of thing. You know, obviously alcohol is involved, obviously parties, all that type of thing. I, you know, I don't recall off the top of my head what exactly came of those accusations, but it kind of, then they, they come up with this independent commission and where they discover a, a culture of sexual entitlement. Uh, it even comes out that there were players who were having sexual relations with women uh, in the penalty box, at the rink, at the new arena, at Aganis. That then also sort of this investigation reveals sort of even further kind of this, you know, more of sort of a, a general sort of entitlement issue, academic issues. Players are in a school, one that I actually taught in for a semester when I was in Boston called Metropolitan College, which is kind of, it's not where an 18 or 19 year old college student would end up. It's mostly a continuing education school. You know, my my class was a lot of people who either were employees of the university and just wanted to take a class or adults who had not graduated from college and then were working on their degree part-time, you know, working moms and, you know, that type of thing. So these are all night classes, not where you would expect a 19 or 20 year old undergraduate to be, to be, you know, to be getting his degree. And then you heard, you know, more things about just, you know, players bullying others in the class and, you know, answering their cell phone, just, just kind of a sense of entitlement. And I think for a school like BU that doesn't have a football team, that doesn't have a big time college basketball team, that doesn't really have this, it's a very sort of, it's a different atmosphere than what you'd get even at like a BC I don't know if liberal is the right word I would use, but there's a, you know, there are a lot of sort of much more intellectual, politically very liberal type of not just the students, but the professors. And so it's not necessarily, you know, they, they have a Alabama where it's just expected that everybody bends back, bends over backwards for the star athletes. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a large fine arts school, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's very much an urban university in, in some ways. It's more like a, it's, it's more like a Vassar almost in a lot of ways, as far as who the student body is than a BC. So I think that for that reason, kind of having this hockey program where the attitude of the students didn't necessarily reflect the attitude of what the large percentage of the community was, I think probably made it even worse than sort of like you said, Andrew, that if this had happened at a larger, you know, sports crazy school. Yeah, and I think it's just unfortunate that, you know, a lot of these stories end this way and certainly not to compare it to a, you know, a guy, not to compare the infractions to a guy like uh, Joe Paterno, which is obviously a much more serious thing. A lot of these 40-year runs that these coaches have don't end the way you imagine they would where it's, you know, national championship and then leaves, you know, high on the hog, that sort of thing where, especially when you're talking about college, there always seems to be a little thing where you kind of wish the guy had left five or six years earlier with his total reputation intact. The, the other thing that I would um, bring about with that point as well is that uh, in reading the, the Wise Guys book, there are allusions to the, sa- the sim- similar sorts of themes as well as far as, I mean, it was kind of a joke where the one player like bribed Coach Parker, they put him back on the power play, or there were also allusions to like um, 
I guess all the players were like bartenders in the dugout because I guess the drinking age was lower back then. So there are, there are allusions throughout that book as well to the guys being allowed to blow off steam. It, you know, it's, it's put a little bit more of a polite terminology, but I think that's something that's, I guess, prevalent in a lot of the, you know, I guess to typical male, you know, male men's sports where a certain level of this is sort of accepted to a degree. And I guess, unfortunately, it can get out of hand, especially having been a female playing this a typically male sport and having played on a like a local you know local rec team in high school with guys. I mean, I you know I have some stories that are not kind to uh, you know the male persuasion in general, as reflected through the, these particular individuals. Yeah, it's, uh, it is unfortunate that, that it comes out as like a you know having tainted Coach Parker's legacy. And I guess you know it, this yeah this was after I graduated and got, and got kind of have pieced together what seemed to actually happen based on what what I knew as a student hearing about what goes on about the athletes and not 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 just the hockey team but most of the hockey team like they always have like the easier majors like they, they they always have the ones where they can get away with writing papers instead of taking tests or you know go going you know just i guess they were afforded more flexibility to their academic schedule because they are the the heralded athletes in the one big sport that actually makes the school money so it's not a it's not a foreign concept and and also just pointing out that hockey in general is typically played by people from well to do backgrounds that it 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 lends itself to people who are from something of an entitled or at least a comfortable financial situation. And all these guys, many of the guys want to go, they go to, they go first to prep school or some of them even play junior B before they even get to college. So it's, you know, it was all kind of a recipe for, for something like this happening eventually. I feel like that might be a big change from what you were talking about in the seventies, where it was a lot of, you know, sort of local, maybe towny guys who obviously got to play at this elite college, but whereas then it was guys talking about their buddies knocking off a truck and can bribe somebody with stakes. 30 years later, it's like you said, it's guys who went to prep school and playing on the private teams and, you know, and the, and all of that. And sort of the cultural shift around some of these sports, probably particularly with hockey, whereas guys might've been blowing off steam at bar in the seventies and bartending and getting paid for doing work. They maybe weren't doing you fast forward that a little and you can see how it might take on a little bit of a different air. So. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, in, in between that, something else I was also thinking about when, when researching for this and just looking back, the entire University of Vermont hockey program was shut down for, I think, two or three years at one point because they had some issue with hazing gone completely awry. This, unfortunately, this sort of thing happens in sports from time to time. So I know that's, you know, since the, I remember, I remember reading the report the, from the independent yeah, investigation. I read it too, yeah. Into the BU team. And I, you know, again, having, having been there and been, you know, being on the women's team and seeing what went on with the men's team and hearing some of these, uh, you know, the, the players like, live separate from the rest of the campus and are insulated from everything. And it's like, well, yeah, like that, I mean, that was kind of just an accepted thing where like they always lived in the same dorms that were nice than everybody else. And they always took the easy classes and they, they were never in, I think by the time I was there, there were a few of them were in the management school, which was regarded as like requiring actual, like, you know, more academic focus than you would expect from someone on that team. And I think now a lot of them have gone on to be in that school and have other, you know, they, they, they made a point of, uh, shifting the culture away from what had bred this, you know, more unfortunate situation. Yeah. I think a, a few points I would make, and maybe this is where I sort of, I, I take off my, my sports hat and put on my, you know, my college professor hat a little bit. I find it 
I mean, obviously the sexual assault is the, is the worst thing, but you know, some of the other stuff, you know, the, the penalty box sex and that stuff. I mean, that's, that's a little jarring to hear about, but at the end of the day, who, who really got hurt? I mean, maybe the janitor who has to, you know, clean up from a party the night before, but at the end of the day, that's, there's a little bit of kind of just college kids being college kids. I find it troubling. And this sort of Andrew was to your point with Paterno, where when one of the many things that came out in the wake of the Paterno scandal was this idea that basically Paterno didn't want anybody to be able to discipline his players besides him. And I think, you you know, one of you guys alluded to it a little bit with Parker also. It's tough when it starts to creep into the experiences of ordinary students. If you're in a class and just trying to get your degree and, you know, maybe you've got a work-study job and you're just trying to, you know, go back to your, your crappy dorm and you're getting bullied by these hockey players. Or, or if you're some professor who's trying to teach a class about intro to 18th century British literature or whatever, and all of a sudden you got five hockey players screwing off and answering their cell phones in the middle of the class, and you, you know there's nothing you can do about it. That's, I think, where this tension sort of arises between between the university and the players and the team. The other thing that I think is interesting, and this is unique to hockey, is that these guys get drafted and then they keep playing college hockey. And a lot of times, I remember in, what, what was the year that I was in Boston? I guess it was 17-18. They were, they were in the tournament that year. I want to see, what was their record in 17-18? Because I was actually... My wife and I went to the first game of the, the NCAA hockey tournament. They played Cornell in in Worcester, and we we saw them uh, we saw them beat Cornell. Or maybe we were at the Michigan game that they lost. I forget. We were one one of the two that year. I forget which one it was. It was on a Saturday, so you could look it up. But two or three of the guys on the team were playing in the NHL a week later, and so it's like, what ability is some professor going to have to discipline some player? when they know that this guy's probably three weeks away from going and making $600,000 a year. And, you know, the professor makes maybe, you know, 10% of that. So there's a weird power imbalance specifically with hockey. Also, let's end this on a little bit of a happier note. Janine, you talked about the, the women's program and your participation there and why don't you just tell us a little bit about to the extent that you know kind of where the where the women's program is today and and where you think it's headed yeah um you know even having any you know tenuous as my connection is to it it's it's been really nice to see that they after transitioning from being like our kind of you know plotting little club team to uh to a d1 program they won hockey's for the first the women's hockey's for the first time in 2010 just a few years after you know, joining the league. They won it for four straight years from 2012 to 2015. They made it all the way to the championship, NCAA championship game in 2011 and 2013. Probably their most accomplished player is a woman named Marie-Philippe Poulin, who is, I think she was the captain of the Canadian national team that I want to say won gold in the Olympics. Again, my knowledge is not as staunch as I would hope, but uh, Brian DeRocher has been the coach the entire time. It was interesting to know him you know, when I was at school as the, you know, assistant to Parker and then rising varsity women's coach and then read about his history being as a player. He's been with the team this entire time and people have nothing but good things to say about him and his, you know, leadership of the, of the program. It's, it's, it's kind of nice how 
how we were the the only club team playing in the women's bean pot, like for many, many more years than we should have been, given how storied the men's team was. Like BU needed to have a, a proper women's D one program a lot a lot sooner than they did. So it's just it's nice that it's finally that's finally there. And as 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 anyone might expect, the res- the results are are have been seen. Great. Well, um, Janine, thank you so much for joining us for this journey into the history of Boston University hockey, uh, men's, but also women's. And a lot of great moments, uh, lots of beanpot wins, lots of national championships, and even a couple of blizzards where fans were stranded in the arena for three days. And Sounds fun. I- <laughs> well, they, they said by, by Thursday morning, they had to kick the people who were still there out because they obviously weren't going to leave on their own. Incidentally, this is way far afield, but I, I don't know, Andrew, maybe you saw this. Have you seen this book that just came out about this guy who lived at Veterans Stadium for like two or three years in the I, 70s? I did read the story, yeah. I, at first, I didn't believe it, but I, I, there's enough details in there that seem to make it at least make some sense. But yeah, it sounds plausible. So anyway, look that up. Thank you again to Janine Schatz for joining us. And we appreciate you all listening as always. And thank you for indulging both Andrew and myself as we talk about our our alma maters and their sports teams over these past few weeks. We will see you next time for the next episode of Hello Old Sports. Until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.